We are in our 10th week of our Ecclesiastes studies. We are walking verse by verse through the entire book. Uh, some of my mentors taught this book in two Sundays. I bet you're wishing I did that. <laughs> I want to make sure the pages of your Bible do not stick together here. Ecclesiastes is in the wisdom section of the Old Testament. You could divide the Old Testament into sections. And there is a jingle that will help you remember. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. Let's try it together as a, as a church family. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. Again, 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. You remember those old commercials that would repeat the telephone number 17 times so you would remember it? I'm that commercial. Uh, j- just the fellas here. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. Just the ladies. 5, 12, it's good. Just those who wish it was a little warmer. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. That's good. The Old Testament can be divided like this. Five books of law. That is Genesis through Deuteronomy. Twelve books of history. That's Joshua through Esther. Five books of wisdom. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Five major prophets. Isaiah through Daniel. Twelve minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi. You see, it's 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. As you travel through the Old Testament, there are common leadership roles that God gives His people. Prophets. God gave His people prophets. The Old Testament is filled with prophets. They're shouting and stomping their feet on nearly every page. A prophet was the mouthpiece of God. They brought God's message to the people. They often began... By saying, thus saith the Lord. You may picture prophets as men with long beards and deep voices. Like Duck Dynasty or Chris Stapleton. You picture them just gargling with broken glass. But sometimes prophets were very sensitive men. There was a guy known as the weeping prophet. Anyone know his name? Jeremiah. God gave his people prophets... God also gave his people priests. If the Old Testament prophets were loud men, then the Old Testament priests were bloody men. They sacrificed lots of animals on behalf of God's people. They were the leaders of a bloody religion. That's why we sing bloody songs and preach bloody sermons. Christianity promises hope, but it's a bloody hope. The high priest... Uh, Not many of those existed in the history of the world, but the high priest was a mediator between a holy God and sinful man. In addition to prophets and priests, God gave his people kings. These were men who were established for the good and peace of the nation. There were some famous ones. King Saul, uh, he was a a beast, head and shoulders above the other earthlings. Uh, King David. He wrote so many beautiful things in the wisdom section of the Old Testament. So let's review for a moment. God gave his people prophets, priests, kings, and sages. When I say sage, I'm not talking about a culinary herb. Sages were wise men who guided with wisdom. They would drop wisdom pearls for God's people. When you think of a wise man in the Bible, a sage... You think Daniel. Uh, One of our elders, Herbster, told me about a a Shakespeare play where a judge 
with a, a young body but an old head takes a hard case and the sage does his thing and leaves everyone in the courtroom amazed after seeing this wisdom put on display someone in the courtroom yells out with amazement a second Daniel in other words what a sage five books of the law Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers Deuteronomy those five books deal mainly with the office of priests. The twelve books of history, Joshua through Esther, deal mainly with the office of kings. The five books of wisdom, including our book today, Ecclesiastes, deals mainly with the leadership role, sages. The five major prophets and the twelve minor prophets deal mainly with the office of prophets. Now why in the world am I going through all of this? Because I don't want you to live like God's left you with a pocket New Testament. 77% of your Bible is found in the Old Testament. Now I can see the perceived problem. It is the Old Testament. It's old. And when you hear old, you think of spoiled milk or something that's out of date, worn out, wrinkly. However, that, that could not be further from the truth. For one, the Old Testament was the Bible of the early church. They tested everything that came to them by it. Secondly, the Old Testament is the story which Jesus completes. He fulfills the Old Testament, or better, He fills it up. The Old Testament is promises made. The New Testament is promises kept. And all the promises center on Jesus Christ. Now, how does Jesus fill up the Old Testament? Well, the 4th century writer Eusebius of Caesarea found it helpful... To think about Christ as prophet, priest, and king. I'll add a fourth. Sage. Now, a few men in the Old Testament have held two of the four offices. But never has one held all four and held them perfectly. Well, that is until Jesus arrived. Each office communicates the person and work of Jesus with succinct theological clarity. Uh, just consider Jesus as prophet. He had a prophetic ministry. He teaches the very words of God. He's the prophet that gives all other prophets validity. He makes them make sense. He is the only one who can reveal what God has been purposing in history since the world began. There was a, there's a single guy in our church and someone came to him and said, I'm going to prophesy over you. I'm a, I'm a prophet. And the person proceeded to say to this guy in our church that he would marry a beautiful woman and land a great job. The guy in our church told me later, Kyle, I don't believe in modern day prophets. But I kind of wanted to after that. <laughs> Hebrews 1.1 Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Jesus is the full and final prophet. Consider Jesus as prophet. Consider Jesus as priest. Jesus had a priestly ministry. He's the ultimate high priest, the full and final priest. He stood in our place and offered the final sacrifice for sin. Last week in that excellent exposition by Kent Shepherd. We found out that Christ not only offered the final sacrifice, 
But in a, a twist of fate, he's also the sacrifice. The leaders of this church, we do not call ourselves priests. We call ourselves pastors. That's what you have in the New Testament after Jesus. Pastors, not priests. So, well, well in, in my religious group growing up, we called pastors priests. Well, you need to stop. Jesus is the last priest. The closing priest who brings us into the presence of God. Consider Jesus as prophet, as priest. Now consider Jesus as king. Uh, there have been lots of kings in the Old Testament. But Jesus is the better king. He's the full and final king. He's the last king standing. The only king standing. All others are bowed down. He's the king your heart has been longing for. There have been many broken images of this king in the form of governors, presidents, dictators, ancient rulers. But this king brings justice and rules with peace. He's our king of kings. He'll rule and reign forever. And you can't impeach him. And he can't be voted out. Therefore Pilate said to Jesus, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. John 18. The Old Testament helps us see Christ not only as prophet, priest, and king, but Ecclesiastes in particular helps us to see Christ as sage. Jesus is a better sage. He's the full and final sage. It's one thing to be a second Daniel. It's another thing to be a final Daniel. Jesus is wisdom incarnate. Wisdom in the flesh. Wisdom came down to you. Paul said Jesus is the wisdom or sage of God. The sage of God. After a rousing performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the famous Italian conductor Arturo Toscanini is said to have told the orchestra, I am nothing. You are nothing. Beethoven is everything. After beholding Christ in the Old Testament, I must confess. I am nothing. You are nothing. Christ is everything. He is prophet. He is priest. He is king. He is sage. He is the ultimate composer. He is our song. Now, I've got a lot of ground to cover today and not a lot of time to do it. So let's get busy. Find Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We are going to dinner with a sage. Whenever Sarah and I face big life decisions, we always go to dinner with a sage. When we were thinking about getting married, we ate with a sage. When we were thinking about moving here, we ate with a sage. We try to eat with gray-haired wise people before we make big decisions. Now the most popular sage in the Bible is Solomon. Solomon held two offices, king and sage. And, and I need to warn you before you go to dinner with Solomon that he's not a linear thinker. Following his train of logic can sometimes be difficult. In conversations, he's like a squirrel chasing after a nut. He's scatterbrained. But we can condense his advice into three categories. The first piece of sage advice is this. You need wisdom. While living in an unstable political climate. You need wisdom. While living in an unstable political climate. 
You're sitting across the table from this old wise sage. And he asks you two questions. Verse 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? In other words, son, there's nothing better than being wise. Knowing how to find the solution to matters. He continues, a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. During your appetizer, this white-haired sage says, I see your face has changed. Your demeanor has changed. Maybe you should pick up a spoon and see how, you, see how your countenance is distorted. It's, it's hard. Have circumstances of your life made your face hard? Has political unrest taken away your smile? Son, wisdom makes you glad, not sad. The way you're processing life is incorrect. Abraham Lincoln said, any man over 40 is responsible for his own face. You have to teach your face how to process life. Wisdom has a transforming effect. Psalm 34, those who know the Lord radiate from their face contagious joy. You can quickly become obsessed, allowing temporal things to dominate your eternal soul. Bitterness and anger do not correspond to the glorious gospel you possess. And I'm pulling the political instability thought from verse 2. Notice what he says. I say... When a sage speaks, you listen. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. The white-haired sage Solomon is possibly preparing his readers for the future political reigns of the Ptolemies in Egypt or the Seleucids of Babylon. Or maybe there's a current powerful, unpredictable eastern king. With the anointing of any new king, the people would swear allegiance to him. In the days of Solomon, these eastern kings were as brutal as anyone recorded in history. Solomon saw submission to these kings as God's will for the people. Now the people of the Bible never knew a democratic process like we have in the states. Paul never voted. Moses never voted. Solomon never voted. They were under pharaohs and, and Caesars. See, and that's why, that's why this text is difficult for us. Because we don't know the days of Nero 1900 years ago when believers were covered with tar and used as torches to light garden parties. We don't know the days of the Anabaptists 500 years ago who believed that baptism by immersion was to take place only by those who personally trusted in Christ. So the city official said, well, if you want to be immersed that badly will drown you. And many of them were. We don't know the days of Scotland 300 years ago when John Knox and the other reformers had their ears cut off and their hands cut off and their bodies impaled on church steeples as a warning to other Protestant believers. Stephen Davey says, One of our problems as believers, especially in a free country, is that we forget we're in exile here. We think we're home. We're trying to get comfortable in the wrong living room. We are citizens of heaven and assigned to the embassy of earth for the time being. We are not settlers. We are pilgrims. 
God knew and ordained that there would be different types of human government. Some people will live under tribal law. Some people will live under democracies. Some will live under monarchs. Others under tyrants. And they're all imperfect because sinners are involved. Now, I think personally that democracy is the best form of government. Until the majority doesn't do what I want them to do. And then I'm thinking, well, then monarchy. But only if I'm the king. We are Protestants. We like to reform. We like to fight. This Protestant church is the result of a certain rejection to authority. The Reformation kind of fueled that in us in a good way. But here, even the reformers recognize this text is a call to submit to government. Martin Luther called this the duty of political obedience. William Tyndale called these authorities the powers that be. Now, watch as the old sage teases out the limits of this authority over the next few verses. Notice verse 3. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Kent Hughes, now his is the king's presence. Be not hasty to go from the king's presence. Kent Hughes rightly points out that Solomon is not telling us how fast to walk away when we leave the White House. Now we're going to have to leave our democracy for a bit to understand the culture of this verse. Historians reveal that in the ancient world, an audience with the king was a matter of life and death. You had to tread lightly. When Esther went into the throne room of King Ahasuerus, she was putting her life in his hands. If I perish, I perish. In this cultural context, you slowly are supposed to back away from the presence of the king. A a turning of the back and a hasty departure from the throne room was really a sign of disrespect. It was disloyal to the king. It was flippant. There is a a theological reason to obey governmental authorities. God commanded it. But there's also a practical reason. They can kill you if you don't. Remember, most human beings will not live in a democracy. Solomon is not writing out of a democracy. He's encouraging his dinner guest, you, to use wisdom to survive in a dangerous and unjust world. He says in 3b, do not take your stand in an evil cause. For he, that's the king, the king does whatever he pleases. Now that that is to say, the king isn't likely going to be persuaded. Don't waste your time. Use your influence sparingly. Pick your battles. Not every hill is worth dying on. Not every issue is equally urgent. And you say, well Kyle, this sounds very unprotestant. Very opposite of the reformers, Luther and Calvin and others. It's really not. He's saying two things. One, if a mob is forming, don't just go out with your pitchfork. Is this cause worth dying for? Judas showed up with a mob. Not every mob is one you should join. And there are online mobs today. Watch out about joining them. Two, he's saying, and this is primary, he's saying wisely engage those in power. And this doesn't just go for kings. It goes for all lesser powers as well. Don't yell at your boss or blow up at your parents. Wisely engage those in power. 
Wybrey captures well the, the paradox of Solomon's view toward governmental authority. He says, on the one hand, Solomon counsels obedience and submission. While on the other, he does not hide the fact that he views the governmental authority as brutal and tyrannical. So the question arises, is there a time for civil disobedience? Is there a time to stomp out of the presence of the king? The answer, yes, of course. This command that Solomon gives us at the table and the New Testament commands to submit to government in Romans 13, Titus 3, 1 Peter 2, they are not commanding blind passivity. You obey the king as long as his laws do not violate God's word. When there is a conflict between the king and God, you obey the higher authority. When do we resist? Verse 5b. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. And there is a time and a way for everything. There came a time when Tyndale had to resist, when Martin Luther had to resist, when Diedrich Bonhoeffer had to resist, when Daniel and the Old Testament had to resist. Daniel let them change his name, but he drew a line at eating the king's diet. Now, we may not know all the cultural implications for, for Daniel, but we know there was a proper time. When the rulers of Jerusalem told Paul to stop preaching the gospel, Acts 5, he disobeyed. You don't just go along with the king no matter what he says. If you do, you might find yourself a part of what God calls evil. There are boundary lines for obedience. You don't obey if it's a sin to obey. If the law is unholy, you must resist. You may have to lose your job because you will not violate scripture. Jesus lived in the most tyrannical and unjust society in the history of the world. How did he prepare his immediate followers for it? How did he prepare his followers to live in this unjust society? Well, Jesus said it like this. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You need wisdom while living in an unstable political climate. The second piece of sage advice is this. Use wisdom, but know its limitations. Wisdom can save you from a lot of hard places, but it doesn't eliminate hard places. It just doesn't. Verse 7, for he, that's you, you do not know what is to be, for who can tell you how it will be? The old sage pushes his appetizer to the side and stares caringly into your eyes. And he says, listen, I'm an old, wise man. And you need to hear this from the lips of a sage. You can gather all the wisdom of the world, but it doesn't reveal the future to you. You can gather all the wisdom of the world, but it does not control the present. And he, he gives more limitations to wisdom in verse 8. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. The old sage says, being a sage doesn't save you from death. When, um, when King Louis XIV was dying, he called his son into the room. 
And his last words to him was this, son, profit by my errors. And remember this, kings die like every other man. This whole book, Solomon has been saying, be a sage, be a sage, be a sage, be a sage, be a sage. Now Solomon says, sages die like every other man. The third piece of sage advice. You need confidence while hearing the wicked receive applause. You need confidence while hearing the wicked receive applause. Solomon now leans back in his chair during the main course and recalls a story for you. He says in verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city. You may want to connect these two words, wicked in verse 10 with praised in verse 10. Now Solomon's house was just a, a stone's throw away from, from the holy place. So that's how he saw them. He could see them clearly. He didn't even have to pull out his binoculars. But one of these wise men apparently died. So in verse 10 he says, Then I saw the wicked buried. It had to be a huge funeral. It had to be an important person for King Solomon to attend the funeral. Uh, the wicked person lay in the casket. But people just keep coming up to the platform and honoring him with their speeches. One after another, honoring the wicked with their speeches. In life, this crooked man had big parties and big houses. And now in death, he has big funerals and big praises. Unfortunately, some pastors do this as well. I'm sure you've heard of the joke about a pastor lauding the wicked man in the casket. And halfway through his message, the dead man's wife got up and looked into the casket to make sure she came to the correct funeral. Praising a dead man, a wicked man. We don't know who these wicked people are in verse 10, but Martin Luther believed that they were actually priests. Israel's religious leaders. And only certain people could go in and out of the temple with freedom, and these people did. So I tend to think they were priests as well. Evil priests. Evil pastors. Wicked leaders of churches. Verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. <laughs> when the wheels of justice turn slowly, or sometimes not at all, it emboldens some people. If people do not observe negative consequences for bad actions, they will be encouraged to do even more evil. People see wickedness thriving and then they feel it's safe for them to do wrong. If Hugh Hefner is praised at his funeral, why live like Billy Graham? When you're hearing the wicked applauded on Twitter or on TV, you must remember, justice delayed does not mean justice abandoned. Verse 12 Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that's confidence. I know that's old man confidence. Confidence from a man who has been around long enough and he's seen things. For I know that it will be well with those who fear God. You must believe God's word over what you see happening. 
Earthly applause will soon fade away. Don't live for hands that clap for you. Live for hands that were pierced for you. This wickedness around you will not go unchecked forever. No one is going to get away with anything. Trust God. Trust the Bible. They will be sentenced. Eventually, the Supreme Court of Heaven will be called into session. And the right thing will be done in every case. There is coming a king who will make all things right. Live before him with fear. And church, this is just personal for me. Speak with confidence. Speak with confidence. Jesus referred to himself in Matthew 13 when he said that the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And he ends it by saying, he who has ears, let him hear. Church, if you know that God's got it, you can calm down a bit. It's only a matter of time before the righteous are vindicated and the wicked are judged. You need this view of life. You need this worldview. The fourth piece of sage advice. Enjoy the table while experiencing the unknown ways of God. Enjoy the table while experiencing the unknown ways of God. Watch him unpack it in verse 14. There is a vanity. That means that there's an emptiness. There's a frustration. There is a frustration that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. So that's the righteous getting what the wicked deserve and the wicked getting what the righteous deserve. One student cheats and he gets an A. While you do your own work and you get a C-. minus. The corrupt co-worker climbs the ladder while you're an honest employee and you just don't. You make a commitment to purity before marriage and you're still single. The girl who throws herself at men gets a ring on her finger and a, a long white dress. While living for Christ, it will not always look like you're winning. But in the end, you will win. Verse 15. This is key. This is the key verse in the entire chapter. Verse 15, this old wise sage says, And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. The old white-haired sage at the table says, Don't obsess. Do not obsess over earthly things so much that you fail to enjoy this food. And then he picks up the plate. And you fail to enjoy this drink. And then he picks up the glass. Verse 15 may, may have sounded familiar to you because you've heard it before. It's a recurring theme. It's the fourth time we've read it in our study of Ecclesiastes. We call these Solomon's enjoyment passages. The sage tells us over and over and over again to enjoy food and drink that's on the table. He said it in chapter 2. He said it in chapter 3. He said it in chapter 5. And he says it again now in chapter 8. Friends, do you enjoy life? 
Do you really enjoy it? Do you enjoy the table, the food, and the drink? Don't spend your time ranting and raving in confused anger. Spend it eating and drinking with confident joy. Until you enjoy the table, you will miss everything that God has intended for you. Jerome, the 4th century priest, he used the book of Ecclesiastes to teach women the vanity of this present world and that they should instead choose the life of a nun. But that's certainly not Solomon's point. He's advising a life full of joy with eating and drinking and enjoying God's good gifts on earth. I'm not going to read verse 16, but I'm going to paraphrase it. You cannot unravel all the enigmas of life. If you try, you will stay puzzled, you will experience many sleepless nights, and you will miss many wonderful meals. Solomon picks it up in verse 17. Then I saw all the work of God. So that's what God is doing in this, in this world. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Let me simplify that. Man cannot know God's ways. You cannot know God's ways. Can you still worship in the mystery? Will you choose to enjoy God when you can't understand what God is doing? Is that not all of life? God said in Isaiah 55 verse 8, For my thoughts are not, they are simply not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. God says, your thoughts are just simply not my thoughts. Well, it would, it would go a lot better if, if it went like this. Now, I'll stick with God on that. On how to control the entire world in his sovereignty. Paul proclaims in Romans eleven thirty three, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. That is worshiping in the mystery. You need to enjoy the table while experiencing the unknown ways of God. Now let's go to our applications. I've got one application, not many, but don't get too excited. It's a very long application. Here's the application. Let's go to dinner with another sage. We've been at dinner with, with the most popular sage in, in the Old Testament. But let's leave that sage and let's go to dinner with another sage. Jesus said in Matthew 12, A greater than Solomon is here. He's referring to himself. He is the second Solomon. But he uses the word greater than Solomon. That's a superlative meaning the greatest sage ever. Jesus says, I'm the greatest sage ever. Jesus is the full and final sage. And it is, is it not wonderful to experience and sit down to dinner with the sage that you admire? It was helpful to sit down at the, at the table with this Old Testament sage. But now it's time for us to push our chair back from the Old Testament table, stand up, and walk over to a New Testament table. And there we will sit with the ultimate sage. 
the ultimate wise man, Jesus Christ himself. We've arrived and we're a little early. Jesus has already instructed Peter and John to go prepare the Passover meal. They found a place and they've prepared the meal. Everyone's arriving. While everyone's arrived, Jesus leans back in a seat and as it were, he says this. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. And he, and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. Now church, whose hand was that? Who would betray Jesus? And he was at the table. In a traditional Passover meal, the wine and the bread were symbols. They were symbols of Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And what Jesus did in Luke 22, which is the passage I read to you, what Jesus did in Luke 22 is something that had never been done in the 1,444 years of Passover. He lifted the bread and he said, This no longer represents your affliction in Egypt. It now represents my affliction on earth. Jesus is instituting the table. He did not clear the Passover elements and start fresh. He used the same elements already in existence. Uh, Luke 22, that is the last Passover in the first Lord's table. Now church, today we're, we're going to the Lord's table. And we're going to do the table COVID style. <laughs> Different than we've done before. And the seat in front of you and the seat back, there is a small container with a juice and a, and a wafer in it. I'd like for you to pull that out and just hold it for a moment. Uh, many of you know that, I'm, that I hate institutionalizing things. Uh, for example, the number of times we do the Lord's table each year. And that's unusual for some people. Some are used to going to the table every Sunday. Others four times a year, and it's just a, a real scheduled thing for them. We do the Lord's table whenever there is an allusion to it in the text. We may do it five times in one year and 12 times in, a, in another. 1 Corinthians 11.25 says, As oft as you do it. So there is no biblical command on the number of times in a year. Every once in a while, we will have people... You know, come to our church and they will try to make that gray area a black and white area. And, and I like to sing them a lovely song. Maybe you've heard of it. Hit the road, Jack. And don't you come back no more, no more, no more. Our other elders are much more patient and choose to teach out of that incorrect view. Uh, but that's why we do it the way we do it. Now, I want to give you instructions on how to take the table. How to approach the table, how to go to the table. And I want to speak directly to Christians and non-Christians. So let me talk to non-Christians first. Non-Christian. Don't be like Judas and come to the table without being a genuine follower of Christ. Because it doesn't matter what you do at the table. Jesus sees your heart. If you're not a follower of this Christ, I'm going to ask that you do not take the bread and cup. 
Take Christ instead. Receive him into your heart as those around you are receiving the food. And come and tell us about what you've done so that we can get you ready to receive the supper the next time as a child of God. We fence the table. Meaning if you're not a Christian, we ask that you do not take this. There are strong warnings in scripture that echo that request. And that's for non-Christians. Now for Christians. Christian. We have non-Christians who came here today knowing that we were going to the table and knowing that they would not participate in the table. They came to watch. They came to watch you at the table. When you come to the table, you are preaching the gospel. Parents, I want to remind you that it is good. It is good for your unconverted children to watch you come to the table without them. They must realize they cannot live on your faith. God has no grandchildren. Only children. If they ask, why, why can't I get a piece of bread and a, and a cup of juice? The correct answer is not, oh, because you're not old enough, son. Don't waste that gospel opportunity. Instruct them about their little precious sinful hearts. And how Christ came to redeem them. Church. Come to the table, but come confessing all known sin. Don't have sin in your life and act like it's not there. If you're bitter at your spouse, if you're bitter at someone at this church, get it right before you take the bread and juice. Come to the table confessing all known sin. Secondly, come to the table receiving forgiveness and giving forgiveness. Ben Witherington told a story, and I think, it's, I think it's likely one of the most powerful stories I've ever heard. At the end of the Civil War in Richmond, Virginia, on the Sunday after the Appomattox and the surrender, a worship service was held in the historic Episcopal church there. And, and it was an old church that had a balcony where the slaves of the owners had sat for many years, and their masters and their families sat downstairs. The practice in this church had been to have two calls for the Lord's Supper. One for the whites downstairs and then one for the slaves upstairs. But on this given Sunday at the first call to communion, an older black man, a former slave, began down the central aisle right after the call. Naturally enough, there was surprise and shock downstairs. What was even more shocking was when the black man stopped and looked over at a white man. Not with a face of anger, but with a face of love, a face of forgiveness. He waited. That slave wanted to go forward with that white man. Just then, the elderly, white, bearded gentleman got up and walked toward the former slave. And the church watched as the two men hooked arms and they went forward to take the table together. That white man was Robert E. Lee. There was forgiveness and healing and reunion at the table that day. And thereafter, there was no more segregated communion. This indeed is one of the functions of the table. The receiving and sharing of forgiveness. 
Jesus sacrificed himself so that our sins might be forgiven. And so that we might be forgiving people as well. What a powerful picture of grace, forgiveness, and togetherness at the cross. At the table. Come to the table with understanding. Come to the table with understanding. If you think your participation in the table will save you, you are deeply delusional. Trusting in the performance of a ceremony is no different than trusting in the incantations of a witch. Salvation by faith in Jesus Christ is not worked by the corporate act of swallowing bread and wine. You must be born again. The ancient Passover meal in Egypt, it really foreshadowed and symbolized the true Passover in Christ. The blood spread on the doorpost of the homes which turned away the angel of death find its ultimate meaning, it fills it up, in the blood spread on the cross which turns away God's wrath from sinners. On the cross, there there wasn't just a, a dead son or a dead sacrificial lamb like there was in Egypt. There was a dead son who was a dead sacrificial lamb. Now some of you are going to be taking the Lord's table for the first time. You're newly redeemed. You're newly converted. God just saved you. All of this is new to you. Friends, we welcome you to the table. We welcome you, brother. We welcome you, sister. Here's something I want you to know about the table. When you come to the table, you come in community. The Passover meal was a family meal. Jesus took his followers away from their families to eat the table. Peter didn't perform the table at his house. John didn't perform the table at his house. Why? There's a new family. The family of God. You may not sit around the table with your earthly family this year. Many of you have not. That's all right. Sit around the table with your spiritual family. I'm never happier than when I'm with my faith family and we're all sitting around the table. Jesus said that we are to come in remembrance. This is not a dirge-like experience. It is a celebration-like experience. This is not a funeral. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Now, I'm going to give you one more thing before, before we commence. And it's this. Come with a wholesome distrust of yourself. The foundational people of Christianity, the disciples, went from communion with Jesus to denying Jesus. And there's a warning in that and there's an encouragement in that. The warning is this. Do not be like them. Don't live like you don't know Jesus tomorrow. There's also a massive encouragement. Ultimately, it's really not about your commitment to Christ. It's about His commitment to you. He'll hold you fast. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.